This last summer I concluded a, a series on Sermon on the Mount, a bit lengthy, uh, and uh, at the latter part, after the, the, pro- the sermon proper ends with the golden rule, Jesus starts to warn, warn about the dangers of deception within the church among those who believe they're one of the sheep. And he states that many will say that they've done works in his name, and at the day of judgment, he will say to some, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And so he warns so that those within the church should make their calling and election sure. And we covered that over a number of messages, and hopefully we didn't beat the horse to death so that it lost its effectiveness. It was never my intent to create any doubt in your mind, but rather simply to highlight that when Jesus warns, we should take heed. And while I received no reports of anybody having doubts about their salvation, it occurred to me that uh, maybe talking about assurance of salvation might be an appropriate next step. And so that took me to the book of First John. Uh, so this is going to be kind of an introduction to a series, and it will be uh, shorter than the sermon series. You're welcome. For, at my pace, only about a year or two, Lord willing. All right. So this is by a guy named John who wrote this letter from a place called Ephesus around 80 to 90 A.D., to, we believe, the churches who are in present-day Turkey. And this is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. And John saw many of the same things in his day that we see in ours, confusion, distortion, and outright denials about who Jesus was and, or is and what it means to follow him, to be saved. And John saw that Christianity stands or falls on the Jesus question, whether he came to earth as fully God and fully man, what we call the incarnation. Now, one of the very helpful characteristics of John is that he always tells us the purpose for his writing. Uh, In his gospel, The purpose is stated near the end in John 20, where he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And in Revelation, we find it near the beginning where he quotes Jesus, who tells him, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. In 1 John, the author gives us several sub-purposes that we will cover in time, Lord willing, all leading to the primary purpose of his letter. And along the way, he's got three themes that carry through right belief, right obedience, and right love for one another. So these themes provide roads to the overarching purpose of assurance of salvation found in 1 John 5, where he writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So 
With confusion in his day like ours, John's two goals were to first expose those who profess Christ to whom Jesus said, I don't know you, sorry. And secondly, he wanted to give assurance to those who knew Christ as Savior, yet had doubts, just as it is possible to profess and do wonderful works in the name of Christ as deceived or as a liar, it is possible to truly know Christ, to be saved, and have doubts. And he wants to give his believers complete assurance so that they may know. So he writes this letter, these truths, to believers, to all believers of all ages, all times, in all circumstances. And these truths reinforce the community of faith that is essential to fellowship, essential to obedience to the Father's command that shapes our lives and love for one another, that builds the body of Christ. So just as Peter told us to make our calling and election sure, John gives us this assurance that we may know. So with that introduction, let's pray for some discernment here. Father God, we give you all praise. We thank you for the assembly of the saints. We thank you for those who have served this country. We thank you, Lord, for most of all, for the gift of Jesus Christ and eternal life that comes only through him. Lord, I pray that you would give us all discernment, that we would be able to understand what you're trying to teach us and that for any who have doubt or questions about their salvation, that they would come to a full assurance of that. Father, we give you the praise and glory and lift this all up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let's approach the text of John's introduction here. So I'm going to ask you to read along with me uh, this together there on the screen. Let's go. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and are touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is what many consider to be one of the great beginnings uh, of books in the Bible. Of course, you all remember Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created, and John, well, John 1 tells us that the word Jesus was there in the beginning. Here in 1 John 1, we're introduced to the Son of God, became flesh, who John calls the life. And so John's goal here is first to know the life that became the incarnate word. Not just in the general sense of being introduced to somebody, knowing their name and maybe something about their personality, but actually rightly comprehending who he is the one who makes it possible for us to enjoy eternal life. And he's got, he asserts two important facts about the nature of the life uh, that we know as Jesus. First, that he is God. 
He was from the beginning and is the eternal life, which was with the Father. Jesus pre-existed time and space. John 1.1 is better translated. Before there was any beginning, the Word had been, and the Word had been with God, and the Word had been God. And Jesus says the same thing about himself. Before Abraham was, I am. The Father and I are one. The one who has seen me has seen the Father. So, Jesus proclaimed his deity clearly, and John states the same. Second, he was human. Now, we know from Scripture that the Apostle John was close to Jesus. He was referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And to prove facts in a court of law, eyewitnesses are very, very important. And here, we've got John emphatically stating that we heard him. He says that twice in this passage. We've seen him. He says that three times. Not only that, we actually touched him. So to these facts, the fact of Jesus' humanity, he testifies with an audible, visible, and even tangible witness of the humanity of Jesus, the word of life. Now, you can understand that the concept of God becoming man would be hard to grasp for anybody. And we just kind of assume that these days. But in those days, that's a stretch for anybody. And there actually arose after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension other possibilities. And one was a group known as the Docetus. And that comes from the Greek word which means to appear. And so the Docetus believed that what appeared on earth was really a ghost or a phantom, not a real person. And so John here refutes the docetist by declaring the reality of Jesus as a man. But today, disbelief remains. The person of Jesus is without debate. Scholars of all stripes admit the historical proof of his life and his crucifixion. It's undeniable. Yet some cannot accept that he was God as well. John, on the other hand, tells us the word became flesh and it dwelt among us. He was fully God, yet fully man. Now, there's a reason that so many cannot accept Jesus as God. A, a reason the doctrine of the incarnation is so offensive. Because if believed, it requires people to accept that a Jewish carpenter born in meager circumstances in a tiny town who only lived 30 years, uh, 2,000 years ago in an obscure time, is in fact God Almighty. And if so, we have to obey him. It requires them to follow the teaching of a book that claims authority over every other book that's ever been written. And if true, the logical conclusion is that man cannot be the measure of all things. Now, how many unbelievers want to be told they cannot determine their own destiny? Every unbeliever has a worldview, has a faith, if only in themselves. Now, they may not admit it, 
But the reality of Jesus means that they simply cannot be their own God. Jesus came to save sinners and offer salvation to all. But in his omniscience, he tells us that few will choose the straight and difficult gate and travel down the narrow road he offers. This isn't a claim of exclusion. He simply gives us the facts. Jesus is referred to in Scripture multiple times as a cornerstone who was rejected by the builders who were the religious leaders in his day. Why? They say he was a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. So, what does it take to make Jesus the cornerstone of your life? I think at least one word is humility. Because you have to stop worshiping yourself. You have to bow your knee to him and him alone. It means realizing that I can do nothing to earn eternal life, completely washing away any merit on my part. On the other hand, what you get for accepting the free gift of salvation is priceless. And that's what we mean. That's what John meant when he calls Jesus the life. Now, the next thing he wants us to do is share the life. The main verb in this introduction does not appear until verse 3. It is proclaim. This is what Tom talked about this morning, is stating with authority. The Christ followers were given a mission together. It was called the Great Commission. And in Acts 17, where Paul and Silas come to Thessalonica, and they proclaim that Jesus rose from the dead, and he is the Christ, the Messiah, those builders, those religious leaders complained that these were men who turned the world upside down. So the first Christ followers had no choice but to proclaim the good news that Christ came to save the world. They knew the truth that they had seen, heard, and even touched. And they understood the value of what they had, been, what they had received, eternal life. They had a fervor that literally compelled them to share that truth with others. And the veracity of their claim is in their martyrdom, which resulted from them holding on to the truth, even in the face of death. Think about it. No one knowingly holds on to a lie if that lie is going to result in your demise. Verse 3 begins with that which we have seen and heard, we declare also unto you. So John essentially says he must proclaim what we have seen, heard, and touched with our hands for specific reasons. And the first reason is this, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And this is a recurring theme in the early part of this chapter. But what does that mean? The Greek word is koinonia, which means first to have in common something that is important and to partake of it together. Now, John knew that what he had witnessed was so vital that it had to be shared with those outside the community of faith. And he invites all to partake of a personal relationship with the one who offers eternal life. And this is not an invitation to just join a group. It's, this group is more intimate and interdependent 
than any social club or political party. It's much more like a family of faith. He tells us later in 1 John 2, no one who denies the Father has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So when we accept Christ as our Savior, God becomes our adoptive Father. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 1. He says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So not only do we get a savior and a father, but lots of brothers and sisters. In fact, so many that Revelation 9 tells us that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. A couple of months ago, I taught a, a message on the Great Commission, a series called uh, Occupy Till I Come. And I may have confused some of you by talking about different cultural uh, matters. And the point I was trying to make was that we are to seek, as we seek to improve our community as salt and light with the goal of bringing others to Christ, we should recognize the influence of cultures, be tolerant of different cultures, and seek a culture that encourages not some great American dream or way of life, but a biblical culture and way of life. And it's in that sense that we as Christ followers need to recognize who and what our culture, our community, our family really is. We said earlier that fellowship or family is about sharing important things in common, more so than where we live or what we look like. So if that's true, this may be hard to grasp, but you and I as believers have more in common with believers in Africa or Asia or South America than we do with the unbelieving neighbor next door. We have more in common with those people. And that should be, that joy that we receive from that relationship should be our motivation to share that joy and that saving knowledge with those neighbors and people we know at work. On a day-to-day -day basis, we hopefully share our faith on a personal level by words and actions and showing love and concern for others. But how does the world see and know the fellowship that we enjoy ourselves? Uh, you know, you might say that, well, uh, we're exhibiting it right now at this moment in this building. Uh, you know, Sean's dad made us a great rugged cross. I love it out there. And we've got a sign outside that says it's a church. So pretty obvious to passers-by that, you know, this is a church building. You know, and uh, we've had some people in the neighborhood stop by and check us out, and we've had a few of them stay, which is all great. It's all great. But in general, likely our neighbors have very little idea about what actually happens here. In fact, depending on their own experience and, and what they've heard about Christians or religious people, they may think that you and I are doing some pretty weird stuff today. You don't know. Another way for others to see and to be attracted to our fellowship is through our own neighborhoods in small groups 
or what we call home groups. And it's been a goal of Lion and Lamb leaders uh, to get as many of you as possible into these home groups. Uh, our corporate worship on Sunday mornings and fellowship is great, but it's really pretty hard if you are honest with yourself to be personal and intimate in a large group. Now, the leaders cannot command you to fellowship and love one another, but Jesus can, and he did, all right? John 13 tells us, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Now, you might point out, he didn't say anything about home groups. True. But what is fellowship? What is love? I suggest to you it's more than a feeling, more than a social interaction. It is action and it is relationship. It's connecting on more than a casual and social level. It's sharing your needs, growing closer in order to truly care about and love one another. As he commanded you and me. What's the effect of loving one another? Jesus tells us in the very next verse. By this... All will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In order for people to see our love for one another, we encourage home groups to meet in neighborhoods, of course, but also to get out as groups and serve one another and others in other places. That's the best way for people to know what these walls hide from their view that we really do love one another. So uh, looking forward, the first Sunday uh, school in uh, January, we're gonna talk about not only how you can serve within Lion and Lamb, but how you can plug into a small group, a home group. Uh, if you've not already considered that, we urge you to think about that as being connected to and integrated within the body. Uh, as part of being a, the family of God, he, John asks us to enjoy the life. Our fellowship is based upon some very important things in common. Common worldview, common theology, a savior, a father, and a common experience of joy that unites us all. And in verse 4, John says, he is writing these things to the church. So let's take a quick look what these things are that allows us to know him. First of all, the very next words, he writes, so that our joy may be complete. Uh, this is the second reason that John is compelled to proclaim what he has seen, heard, and touched. To know him is not partial, but complete joy. Again, we talked about this in Sunday School today, the difference between joy and happiness. Our fellowship with one another and with God is what brings us joy. And so it's not just the joining that makes the difference. Church, again, is not a social club. And that is the problem with some churches that focus too much on the church experience, upon being too seeker-friendly. Yeah, it's great to be friendly. It's great to be welcoming. Uh, but it's so much more important to be friends with the Savior. It's not only fellowship with us, it's fellowship with the Father that brings so much joy. Next, he calls us to pursue his righteousness. He says in 1 John 2, 
my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And so you guys have probably run into people who believe that Christians are self-righteous people who believe they're perfect. You know that's not true. We all know that we're not sinless and we never will be. Yeah, despite our sins, despite mine, Jesus accepts me just as I am. However, he does not want me to stay just as I am. He rather calls me and you to become more like him every day. And from the point of salvation, we should continue to grow and mature every day. An advocate in this verse is one who speaks on your behalf before a judge. And the term propitiation there means that Jesus becomes our covering, our substitute. He has assumed our obligations. And he covers our guilt by the punishment that he endured on the cross for us. So, we should become more and more like Jesus, not out of obligation, but out of gratefulness. And that gratefulness should cause us to be filled with joy. And those who truly know and love him will keep his commandments. Next, John calls us to pursue the truth. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. In order to enjoy the life that is Jesus, John writes in chapter 2 to warn us about antichrist, false prophets, who bring wrong teaching and lies. Their doctrine is patently false. At least, it's false. Our joy in him is more than emotion. It is based upon shared truth about who he is. We cannot choose what we want to believe about Jesus. We can't make up our own Jesus. We must accept him as he defines himself. This is the Jesus who was with God and was God, who, uh, who lowered himself to earth as a man in the flesh, who lived a perfect life and who suffered and died on the cross to pay out of necessity for our sins and who was resurrected in victory over that sin. And this is the same Jesus who will come again to bring God's kingdom. Any other Jesus is a fraud. Any other Jesus is simply made up to fit our preferences. So sharing the truth and the doctrine about Jesus is essential to knowing, loving, and enjoying the life we call Jesus Christ. <coughs> and finally, and most importantly, in this letter, John calls us to acquire assurance of salvation. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. This is the ultimate purpose of this letter. As mentioned earlier, this verse demonstrates that God knew that as imperfect beings, we can be saved and have doubts nonetheless. And the more of life, perhaps you've had this experience, the more life that I see, interact with others, and see myself, the more I see that we tend to be weak and uncertain beings. You know, John wants us to be certain that because we have believed and trusted in Jesus Christ, 
and his sacrifice for payment of our sins, we can know that we're in his family. In about 325 AD, church leaders from around the known world at that time gathered in what is now modern Turkey in a town called Nicaea. And the issue they were discussing was the identity of the Son of God. Among them was a, a, a man named Arius. And Arius argued that God became a father by creating his son Jesus. A couple other guys, Alexander and Athanasius opposed this view because they knew that the doctrine of salvation was at stake. And praise God, he allowed the view of Arius to be rejected, resulting in what we call the Nicene Creed. So, to, I'm going to invite everybody to uh, stand up as the worship team comes forward. And if this is your conviction, Let's recite a part of the Nicene Creed together. Oops. Well, there we go. All right, here we go. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the begotten of God, the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father. God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten and not made, of the very same nature of the Father, by whom all things came into being, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible who for us humanity and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate, was made human, was born perfectly of the Holy Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit, by whom he took body, soul, and mind, and everything that is in man, truly and not in semblance. He suffered, was crucified, was buried, rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven with the same body and sat at the right hand of the Father. He shall come again with the same body and with the glory of the Father to judge the living and the dead of his kingdom. There is no end. Father in heaven, we give all praise and glory to you. May we have assurance. Please work in us and work in others around us who have doubts. Help us to be that light that brings that assurance to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.